Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, January 10th, 2019. Who would have believed it? I'm a little discombobulated tonight because I wasn't able to work in my multitasking, a proper presentation of the show, but I've got one in mind and outlined. I'm excited. I'm excited about two events in particular and about some calls that I've had with attorneys that were seeking my help um, in terms of drafting or preparing for trial and so forth. Let's start with the last one. The thing that excites me is that these lawyers who were avoiding the main issues involved in false claims of securitization are now getting more curious about it. And they're starting to see how they can use it to win cases. And it all, that all boils down to attacks on foundation with objections, um, relating to foundation, hearsay, uh, best evidence, uh, etc. And, of course, always attacking the role of any party that is involved in the foreclosure because those are puppets put up to the front of the stage. So, What I'm excited about on the judicial front is two events. One occurring at the Supreme Court level in Florida and the other at SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States. They both, if you read them carefully, point the way to restarting the rule of law in foreclosure defense. And I think the start of court penetration into the veil of securitized loans, so-called securitized loans, whether they are claimed as securitized or not, let me clarify that point. There are several foreclosure mills that are veering away from naming the trust because they know and they have always known that there are no trusts 
and even if the trust was somehow construed to be a legal entity, it doesn't own the debt, the note, or the mortgage. So they're naming some bank. Could be Bank of America. Could be Citibank. It could be Chase. Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo was ahead of the pack on this. They liked to claim to be the plaintiff in a judicial foreclosure. Uh, and then they would admit deep into the case that they were just the servicer and the investor was Fannie Mae or whatever. And that was frequently in the case where the, the the loan was originated in the name of American Brokers Conduit or Broker One or, I mean, the name says it alone. It's a conduit and it, and it was used as a broker. It was not a lender. So the banks are. Uh, telling the attorneys to name them themselves, the banks, as the claimant. But they've got problems with that because even though one or more of their subsidiaries may have actually been the issuing party and maybe even the funding party for loans, Stepping up and saying that would be an admission of wrongdoing, illegality, even criminality. So when I say that the veil of securitized loans, whether they are claimed as securitized or not, you got to keep in mind that many, many, many loans where they do not mention a trust are still subject to false claims of securitization, and there is a trust name involved. Also remember, the trust name is a DBA, a fictitious name, for the investment bank that pretended to be an underwriter when it was an issuer using the name of whatever they used to uh, create the illusion of the existence of a trust. Very convoluted stuff, intentionally so, designed to put a judge to sleep very successfully, and frankly designed to be a, a great challenge to foreclosure defense attorneys, which it has been. And you can't blame them because it takes hours to read through several times the prospectus, the pooling and servicing agreement, and realize that boil it all out, there's nothing there. But they sure made it look like there was something there. So before we get to the two cases, I wanted to add on to a little bit 
to what we talked about last week on the concept of recoupment. Um, we talked about that last week with Russell Baldwin. And after he spoke about it, again, to, uh, this time on the air with me, the concept is continuing to fascinate me. Um, it might be a way to win regardless of the outcome of the primary case. He made a good point, and I found myself suggesting the defense of recoupment today to someone, uh, a lawyer who is about to file affirmative defenses in a foreclosure claim. I again caution, however, I've been doing some research, I caution that the, re that the law in your state needs to be carefully researched as to the substantive law and procedure in using recoupment. But so far, my investigation has shown that recoupment has been largely overlooked by the legal community, as Russell Baldwin said. And that it is a very effective weapon that cannot be defeated or struck on the basis of statute of limitations or other defenses that are allowed to homeowners' claims for wrongful or fraudulent or negligent foreclosure violations of FDCPA, RESPA, and TILA. It's a claim that can only go up to the amount that is owed to the party claiming the debt, which is interesting because if you if you made your claim as a lawsuit against them for damages instead of just an affirmative defense for recoupment, then you would have the opportunity to get damages above the amount that they're asking for in particular with punitive damages and so forth. I'm not sure how punitive damages could be worked in to a defense of recoupment. The interesting thing is that we are saying that the party claiming the debt has no right, justification, or excuse for doing so. So if we prove that the party named as plaintiff in a judicial foreclosure or beneficiary in a non-judicial foreclosure, if we prove that party is not really a beneficiary or not really a proper plaintiff, we win the case, but of course, so, of course we also eliminate the defensive recoupment. But the other side wins their primary case you still have, the homeowner still has an opportunity to win on recoupment, which knocks out whatever amount the uh, court finds is due for recoupment, which uh, uh, is money uh, that comes off the debt or that is to be paid to the homeowner. So you got it coming and going. You can win the case, which is what all of my wins have been based on, uh, is, is attacking the uh, uh, 
the foundation for the parties and their documents and their testimony, etc. Or, if you lose the case, you still have recoupment. And there, if you use it properly, that opens up discovery on a pretty wide basis. So, the uh, the all or nothing uh, strategies that we've seen up to now may not be the only way to go. There, you you may have an all or something uh, if you file an affirmative defense alleging recoup. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, and this show is brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, and the Garfield Firm. And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we earnestly ask you, to hit the donate button on the blog or call 954-451-1230 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if our work on the blog and the radio shows and our other publications are all done without payment or any other support, if that is value to you, then please chip in. Make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. So that brings us to the glass case in the Supreme Court of Florida. This decision stunned the legal community representing the banks. They had, they thought they had it all sewed up when, in fact, the door not only was it not sewn up the door was opened questioning their representations in court and now allowing an award of fees to a homeowner who wins the case, at least in certain circumstances, and I would argue most circumstances, which could be awarded even though the homeowner undercuts the claim by revealing lack of standing. Now, this had previously been interpreted incorrectly, and when I pointed that out, uh, I got a heap of criticism across the Internet that was saying I was wrong and the, the appellate courts were right. The appellate courts had basically said that if you reveal a lack of standing that therefore there's no loan contract between the parties and therefore if you win on that basis then you can't use the attorney's fee provision in the mortgage or the note in order to get an award of fees. So even if you won you end up paying your own attorney's fees. Well, the Supreme Court 
basically said to the appellate courts and the trial courts, Supreme Court of Florida, said that they only they had it half right and had come to the wrong conclusion, which is basically what I had been saying. They said that just because there was a lack of standing doesn't mean there was no loan contract. And they didn't say what I think is appropriate. It's an estoppel argument that if somebody comes in alleging rights under a contract and makes you defend it when, in fact, they had no such rights, that they should be able to get, they should have to pay attorney's fees, whatever the award is, by the, uh, by the court. Once they invoke the contract, <clears throat> I think they should reciprocally be the victim of it as well. Uh, and uh, that might come under the doctrine of estoppel. But in any event, the Florida Supreme Court said that if the decision to dismiss the case uh, by the trial court was solely based on lack of standing, then it might be true, they didn't actually say that it is true, that the homeowner can't get fees. But if, as in most cases that we've seen so far, there is no express finding that this is the only basis on which the case is being dismissed, then the homeowner is entitled to an award of attorney's fees. So, the Remember this, you don't prove lack of standing. You don't prove lack of standing. That's a that's misconstruing the whole defense narrative and the way things need to be done. You reveal it. You reveal it by objections to their foundation and revealing the disconnect between the apparent named plaintiff, who, by the way, frequently never existed, the trust, the disconnect between the named plaintiff and the so-called debt that they say they're entitled to collect, administer, enforce, foreclose, etc., It's not until you understand the nuance between the fact that you're not proving lack of standing 
but that you are revealing it, that you can actually do it in court. Because as soon as it looks like you're proving it, you don't have the information that the other side has, and you would probably have to show by clear and convincing evidence that your narrative is true, when in fact the burden was always on the party bringing the claim. So, as I pointed out in uh, my blog article on this, we know that homeowners are winning foreclosure cases all the time. We also know that nobody else knows about homeowners winning foreclosure cases because as soon as a homeowner wins or gets into a winning position, they are offered money for their silence in a settlement agreement in which they agree will be under seal of confidentiality, punishment for which is loss of their house and potentially other things as well. Whether such a uh, an agreement is enforceable is a, a, top, a whole other topic that could be discussed at some other time. The situation worsened when Florida and courts in other states turned down the homeowner's demand for attorney's fees after they litigated for years sometimes, running up tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees. They won. And they won by showing that the representation that this was the plaintiff and that the attorney was representing a real claimant on the subject debt, note, or mortgage was untrue. That's what standing is all about. So here in the Florida Supreme Court case, the Glass case, I'm sorry, the, uh, yeah, the Glass case, um, the homeowner once again wins, but like most homeowners, he advanced several different defense narratives. The homeowner applies for recovery of attorney's fees after the uh, judgment is entered uh, uh, dismissing the case. And the demand is rejected because supposedly the loan contract no longer exists or because the party seeking to use it was shown not to be a party to it, at least when suit was commenced. This Florida Supreme Court decision reverses that decision and rejects others like it. Recognizing the, the danger of the erroneous rulings from the trial court and the district courts of appeal, the Florida Supreme Court rejected arguments that a dismissal, voluntary or otherwise, based upon lack of standing meant that the loan contract no longer existed. While not completely abandoning the lower courts, the trial courts and the district courts of appeal, the Florida Supreme Court has narrowed this issue of an award of attorney's fees such that 
it is again almost always arguable and even inevitable that if the homeowner wins the foreclosure case, an award of fees will follow. So the implication here is that the Florida Supreme Court was correctly applying the rule of law. They were, they were saying that the same thing that homeowners have been saying for two decades now. Okay, yes, I've got a debt. The question is, who is it owed to? If it's not owed to the named plaintiff, which means the named plaintiff has to exist, then, or the named plaintiff, if it does exist, is not the owner of the debt. The named plaintiff must be acting in a representative capacity. It's the only two ways they could be in court or initiate non-judicial foreclosure proceedings. So if they are not one of those two things, the owner of the debt or the uh, uh, an agent of the owner of the debt with authority to enforce, or theoretically a holder in due course, which is a whole separate set of rights based upon the UCC and Article 3. If, if they're not either the owner or an agent of the owner, then they have no standing. If they can't prove authority to be there, then they have no standing. Now, one of the interesting tests that I'm going to point out to you is... What happens when the foreclosure case goes favorably for the claimant, the party claiming the right to foreclose? And my investigation has revealed, along with dozens of others now, what I had predicted back in 2006 that you're not going to see the proceeds of foreclosure, of liquidation of the property after a foreclosure, you're not going to see the proceeds ever go to the benefit of the party who initiated the foreclosure proceeding. The party who was named as the holder or plaintiff, or claimant, or beneficiary, that party never actually gets, as far as I can tell, the money from the sale of the property after foreclosure. Plowing through discovery, you might be able to reveal that fact your 
discovery is aggressive enough through motions to compel and motion for sanctions, etc. In relation to other cases which you could research and find using LexisNexis or uh, Google or whatever. If you can show that this same U.S. bank as trustee for blah, 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 never got the money, or that Boney Mellon never got the money. Sometimes they received the check, by the way. Boney Mellon, in one case uh, that I'm consulting on, physically received the check, but never deposited it, sent it to subservicer, who in turn sent it to the investment banker who had masqueraded as an underwriter when, in fact, it was the investment banker that was the issuer using the name of the fake trust. That's all the time we have for tonight. We'll see you next week. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.